Welcome back to the Perpetual Wealth Podcast, a show for clients of Paradigm Life. This season, we're empowering you to take control of your financial future using the core principles of the Perpetual Wealth Strategy. Now, before we dive in, a quick but essential disclaimer. While this podcast is primarily for our valued clients at Paradigm Life, it's open to anyone interested in enhancing their financial knowledge. However, please remember that our information should not be taken as a direct tax, legal, or financial advice. We strongly recommend consulting with a wealth strategist at Paradigm Life or your financial team before making any decisions based on our discussions. Today, we continue our journey into cash flow, protection, and wealth building, the foundational principles of the perpetual wealth strategy. Let's dive in and explore how to optimize your wealth and achieve financial independence. Your journey continues now. Hey everyone, welcome back. We are going to be talking about the, the top 10 uh, questions, inquiries uh, that we get from uh, you all uh, consistently. And uh, I have my uh, good friend, colleague, Nick Welch, with me. Uh, Nick is, has been with the organization for about 10 years, and uh, he works with a lot of our uh, existing clients. And uh, you know, since 2007, we've, we've worked with uh, about 8,500 people uh, and counting. And you know, it's really allowed us to uh, see lots of different scenarios, situations, uh, but also we get the, the same questions, right? So we're, we're addressing uh, those for you uh, on this episode. So thanks, uh, thanks for being here. Nick, thank you for being here too. Absolutely, thanks for having me. Okay, so another, you know, when, when clients really understand like how the wealth maximization account, high cash value, whole life plays into the different areas of, uh, of their financial life, cash flow protection uh, and wealth, they... They want to understand how do they maximize their uh, existing existing policy and ask the question like how how much can I put in how long can I put it in for so how do you typically approach that Yeah, that's something that is going to be not just client specific but policy specific, um, which is there are a couple of different answers to that question. Each insurance company has its own uh, uh, guidelines and regulations as to how much you're able to contribute in any given year. Um, there are also um, IRS limitations that we are under for uh, especially max funding the policy like we have, have typically advocated, um, how long you're able to do that before um, Uncle Sam uh, has his say with yep. that. Because if we, if we got dollars growing in a tax-favorable environment, which is what we have with the policies you better believe that that there's uh going to be some restrictions. restrictions as far as how many dollars can exist in that environment and that again is going to be client and contract specific uh, policy specific as to what that is going to look like yep so usually there's you know a, a certain test that is that is used and those tests from a irs perspective are built into how we're able to demonstrate, you know, the performance of a policy, how it plays out over the course of time, based on the premiums that are going in, uh, and so we can t uh, essentially test for that and sh and know, okay, how can how much can we put in on a year to year basis without triggering uh, a different taxation, which we don't want to do. Exactly. Reach out to your wealth strategist; they'll be able to help and illustrate that for you. 
the you know I've read the legislation that governs the whole uh, modified endowment contract limit that the IRS has put on on the policies, and it can get quite confusing. Simply put, there is this stress test of how much premium you are buy, uh, are contributing, how many dollars you're you're putting into this insurance environment, and how much death benefit that is buying. Yep. You have too many dollars going in, and we don't have enough death benefit to support that. That's where it crosses over that IRS threshold. Yep. And typically, the approach we take with with clients when setting up a wealth maximization account uh, is also setting up uh, term insurance. And the term insurance we set up uh, is 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 typically convertible, and it's convertible uh, into permanent insurance. Now, depending on the, the carrier and the policies, sometimes it can be converted into uh, both base and PUA. Sometimes just base. Okay, so this again requires conversation with your your wealth strategist. But if you do get to the point where you're able to contribute more uh, than you're capable of because of how the uh, policy was designed, you can now convert some of this uh, term insurance that uh, that was set up, and do not have to qualify medically to do so. That's exactly right. I mean, when we're looking at whole life insurance wealth maximization account. Typically, the approach is what's the uh, uh, um, most amount of cash flow, savings ability, what does that look like, or what might already exist when it comes to dormant, lazy assets that we can make more productive, and based on that amount, what's the least amount of death benefit that we need to stuff in that Mm -hmm. cash so that we can get the most living benefits that this environment happens to provide us. But when we're taking that approach, you're going to be significantly undercovered from a human life value perspective. You don't have the amount of coverage that you should to cover the, the risk of you passing away. And that's why use that as a, as a starter point and then supplement with that, whether internally as part of the whole life policy or, or externally with a, a standalone term coverage, some amount of coverage to cover that gap very inexpensively gets you the amount of coverage that you need. And again, um, we would typically do so in the form of convertible term coverage so that you've got that ability that um, as cash flow and savings ability increases um, that you can, without having to go through the rigmarole of underwriting, utilize that as an additional place to park some funds, start an additional uh, uh, place to park some uh, cash flow. Okay, so another question uh, that we, we get quite often is when uh, essentially, clients are comparing their uh, their policy to another asset, right? Uh, so the question is, um, like, what's what's how's my policy performing? What's it doing? Is it doing what it's supposed to do? Uh, you know, I'm experiencing you know high returns in this area or this area, and I'm looking at what my policy is doing, and you know, it's a it's natural to start comparing. So how do you typically approach that scenario? Yeah. Um- there are a couple of different ways. First of all, I want to know kind of what the, the context is because hopefully the client understands the role that this plays as a savings vehicle, not an investment. That's the, you know, the key is that are there asset classes or are there investments that can outperform a, a, a life insurance policy in any given year? Absolutely. In mm-hmm. fact, I'd say that if you can't beat a life insurance policy, you might not be a good investor. Like yeah. you should not <laughs> invest. So 
undoubtedly you can earn a higher rate of return somewhere else, but what are the tax ramifications? What's the relative certainty and, and risk associated with those dollars uh, potentially going somewhere else? You know, that, that's the, the first thing to understand is that difference between a savings vehicle and an investment, which is going to be key first and foremost. And this is where we use the hierarchy of wealth, right? Because obviously hierarchy of wealth is kind of a balance or a blend of all the different assets that you have in your portfolio based on the uh, uh, inherent risks as well as control and influence. And so comparing, let's say, a wealth maximization account uh, to a real estate investment, okay, it's kind of like the real estate investment, you know, as we've spoken about before, does, does one thing, right? It's its own kind of central thing and it performs a rate of return. You put money in and it gives you money out, okay? So it plays essentially one role. Looking at wealth maximization account being a tier one asset, it's a completely different dynamic, right? So the comparison isn't uh, always, uh, it, it isn't always fair in a sense, right? Or balanced. So that's why we use the hierarchy of wealth to really determine what tier uh, the investment is in. Now, obviously with whole life, right? And the specific cash value in tier one, okay, we're, we're looking, you know, kind of at a maximum around 50, uh, 40%. So the idea of having that, you know, opens up room, right, for other type of investments. So we're not saying uh, that you're, you can't get a better return elsewhere, right? I think you, I think you can. Uh, whole life is essentially just balancing out uh, the uncertainty that you're going to take on by investing uh, elsewhere. So that's, a, that's the first thing. But then, you know, from a policy performance, how do you typically show a client how their policy is uh, is performing. Exactly. That is the other side of the question, which is, you know, there was an initial expectation when the policy was started as to how it was going to perform. And, and what's fascinating, having talked to clients that have had policies for a, a couple of years, a handful of years, 10 years, um, I, I have some uh, policies that were started in the 80s, um, and, and when we look at original projections to what has actually happened, and I, I've created a good visual so you can kind of see it side by side, there's not a lot of, of uh, variability with these life insurance policies. Like within a very small margin of error, they're going to do what we say they're going to do with very little variation. I think it's comforting for the client to see that uh, so that they know that um, it's doing what the expect, you know, expected uh, performance was when it was initially started. Um, well, this is, so this is important yeah. because if you, you know, typically when clients come in and ask this question, they're experiencing, I would say, a short-term gain in a specific area. It could be in a savings account, a money market account. It could be in uh, you know the the stock market could be in their four hundred one k their retirement account. It's like wow, it did it did this this year. Okay, how is my policy performing? And it's like Ooh, you know the, your four hundred one k did ten percent, your policy did like five and a half, right? It's one of those like wow, why would I do that? Why would I do this instead of this? Right. So again, it's like the the short term versus long term is is very interesting, right? Because I think because of how we experience reality in life. Okay, it's very short-term focused, right? It's very in the present and, and right now. Preparing for the future, right, from a rational standpoint, I think we can all understand and agree with and probably have a conversation around. We got to realize that, like, this is the vehicle for the long-term, right? It's going to do what it's going to do on an annual basis. Okay, it's not going to be very sexy. It's not going to be, like, ups and downs and big gains and small gains. 
it's going to be consistent and it's not going to lose anything. And ultimately it's going to perform how it's going to perform over the long run. Yeah. Not going to lose anything is, is key because this is, you know, as certain of an asset class as you'll, you'll be able to find in my opinion. Um, so that, you know, that, that's, that's key. And when we're looking at an original ledger compared to what has actually happened, um, there are a bunch of columns, but there are really only two ledgers that have the potential of changing in a policy, the client's outlays and the dividend. Other than that, everything else is baked in and done on a contractually guaranteed mm-hmm. basis. And it's the insurance obligation, insurance company's obligation for those, those contractual guarantees that are being illustrated. Even the, the dividends that aren't guaranteed, once you get a dividend, that contractually becomes- You can't lose it. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that contractually becomes part of the policy yep. and it becomes guaranteed. And so, you know, that's why there, there uh, uh, is very little variation. It's good to know that. Um, you mentioned, provided the example of uh, maybe a client experiencing increases in the other areas of their financial life. I often get that question because of them experiencing losses elsewhere and they yeah. wanna make sure, okay, well, is my policy doing because I might be experiencing uh, 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 losses in my 401k or, or with my brokerage account and is this doing what we had expected it to do? And it, it will, yeah, that's, that's what really makes it unique is that again, with a small amount of variation, it's, it's gonna do what we say it's going to do, especially if you keep up your end of the bargain as far as the outlays are concerned. Yep, so we've obviously covered, you know, it, talking about frequently asked questions and what clients come to us with. We, you know, we've covered the different uh, you know, areas of financial life that a whole life policy wealth maximization account uh, applies to. Okay, but I would say from you know, the typical comparison, it's usually how the cash value is doing, how the dividend is doing. It's that growth side of things. Okay, and so being able to illustrate that sometimes helps. Shows you know, the outlay, the money you're putting into it, and the annual increase. Uh, being able to see that you know, year after year or you know, every couple of years uh, is important. At the same time, you know, the, the area of Wealthview 360 that uh, I feel is vitally important uh, is legacy value. Right, so in Wealthview 360, you have uh, the, your net worth uh, is you know, a very prominent number and obviously evaluates where you're at in financial life to a degree. But legacy value is also important, right? Because legacy value, what that does is it's obviously you know, net worth uh, plus the permanent death benefit minus out cash value, right? But it, it shows like, okay, your, your death benefit is continually growing over the course of time. Uh, as well, obviously, cash value is growing, but death benefit is growing. Therefore, your legacy value is growing, right? So, really, being able to pay attention to Wealthview 360, keeping that updated, uh, allows you to see see the number of what will pass on to your beneficiaries, to your legacy, to your trust, to your estate planning, uh, right? From a financial perspective, like it actually has that number that includes the permanent death benefit. That again, these you know other assets that are typically compared to whole life do not have. Okay, another question you know that, that we get right is is pretty situational, right? So, uh, obviously, with being able to take a loan against the insurance uh, cash value uh, from the insurance company, right? You, you you're presented with an outstanding loan, and you know for whatever purpose, it could be for you know buying a car, it could be for a down payment on a property, it could be for education, 
But there comes a time after that event where clients are like, okay, uh, I have this outstanding loan. Okay, I'm also paying premiums. Okay, I have this money. Should I should I pay that to PUA or your paid up additions writer? Should I pay that to base policy? Should I pay that to premiums or should I pay it to uh, the the lo- or paid on the loan? How do you typically uh, approach that? Yeah, that's a great question. And and the simple a- answer to that question is it's all a function of cash flow. Mm-hmm. So my general rule of thumb is is that as if I as I've got cash flow coming in. Um, above and beyond expenses, I want to allocate it to my policy. And I kind of follow this logic, this priority list, which is first and foremost, I want to make sure that the base premium is paid. It's the chassis of this savings plan. It's the most important thing. It keeps this, this policy alive. So I want to make sure that that's number one priority. Oftentimes included that in that is going to be, you know, a term writer or something associated with the policy. So that would, you know, also fall into the priority number one. Second is going to be if there is a, a loan outstanding, making sure that we pay some interest that is due. That way, as our policy values are compounding and growing, we don't also experience compound growth on the loan side of things. So making sure that we're keeping uh, the, the balance, the loan balance at bay by paying interest that is due would be priority number two for me. Number three, maxing out your paid up additions contributions. Um, overfunding the policy and and last on my priority list would be paying down loan principal. So base, interest, uh, um, maxing PUA and, and paying down loan principal. Now that's again, that's a general rule of thumb. It's not necessarily applicable to everyone's situation. Maybe someone is right at the beginning of their policy and they would best, you know, they would be best off maxing out their PUA before doing anything towards the loan or somebody is is preparing for retirement and they would be better off in preparation for retirement uh, uh, reducing or eliminating the policy loan balance before maxing out paid up additions contributions so you know it's a general rule of thumb but again get with your uh, uh, wealth strategist so that you can get specific advice as to what is going to be best in your situation and the typical you know how to approach that especially meeting with your your wealth strategist is to first use you know the the diagnostic tools or the self-evaluation tools of uh, your Wealthview 360, uh, as well as the hierarchy of wealth. Keeping that up to date really will allow, okay, health-wise, uh, where am I at with my uh, cash flow, protection, and, uh, and wealth? And then specifically to the hierarchy of wealth, how are my assets distributed within the hierarchy of wealth? So as you're, per, as you're really looking at, okay, should I pay this cash to pay down a loan or should I pay cash into uh, the uh, cash value through premiums? Okay, again, it's going to be situational, right? It may be different for every single situation, uh, but it's first important to just have the evaluations done first so that you can take those tools to your wealth strategist uh, and you can have a conversation around what is the best course of action uh, with uh, the decision that you're making, yeah. And a precursor to that question would also be, you know, what was the use for the the liquidity, the the uh, uh, accessing the policy loan provision and utilizing that? Because simply put, I think that there should really be two primary times when we deploy the policy values, when we uh, 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 utilize the policy loan provision, which would be to either save on interest cost or to increase our interest earnings. So if we're saving on interest costs, that's, that's you know, the typical banking. It's a lot of what, what Nelson Nash had talked about in his book, which is 
we either have debt or we're looking at making a purchase that we would need to be making anyways, rather than financing that through the bank, we're able to do it maybe through the policy and at a reduced cost as a mm -hmm. result. Um, and if you follow his logic, it would be, you've got a set amortization schedule. You've got to pay this monthly amount back as you would, as a you typical would financial a institution, because we got to maintain the same discipline that you yeah. would, uh, uh, if that loan was through uh, a financial institution. So, and I understand that, but again, to keep it simple, we've got cash flow coming in. We understand the value of the policy kind of following that logic. It, it gives, a uh, uh, without having to break out spreadsheets and have set payments, it gives a good rule of thumb of how we should replenish what was borrowed or make contributions, future contributions to uh, the policy. Um, and if we're also utilizing it for the acquisition of assets, increasing cash flow, increasing our interest earnings, um, the same would be true that we want to funnel any cash flow above and beyond expenses back to the policy as well. But the inevitable result of saving interest or earning interest should be that your cash flow would increase. So if we go down that list of base interest, PUA, and base premium, and we still have excess cash flow, that's when we're, we're going to need an additional place to park those funds or an additional savings bucket. And I, I would say that it is the rule more than it is the exception that our clients, as a result of putting the policies to use, increasing that cash flow efficiency in their lives, end up needing an additional place to park those funds, which is, I'd say, maybe a priority item number five, which is an, an additional policy. So this is where I'll, I'll, I'll kind of break into maybe a, a side conversation around this, which I think we can apply to earlier, uh, earlier in the examples we're giving. Uh, but if you, if you look at the first example you gave, which is, you know, the source of uh, the policy loan, right? So policy loans are, uh, I would say, going to be used when there is a, an expected or unexpected uh, event, right, where it requires money. It could be an emergency event, unexpected, like medical, uh, et cetera, or, or a deductible on a, a you know, a, a P&C, property and casualty type of insurance policy. Um, so, or it could be an expected one, whether mm -hmm. it's a vacation or whether it's uh, a, uh, let's say, tuition for, you know, school for, for a child. Uh, or uh, a bike or I mean there's a, so many different like big you know one-time expenses that are not part of like fixed expenses inside of a budget or a spending plan so the the idea is like you use a policy loan to, to pay for that but the idea is to also replenish that right so it's to use cash flow to uh, to pay that back uh, but also a policy loan can be used in order to let's say put money into your business right whether it's uh, maybe a marketing campaign or a software project uh, or to, you know, make a, an investment uh, into a, a property or maybe a down payment on your primary, you know, a primary residence, new primary residence, or an, an addition to your house. So the idea, again, it's like everything uh, relates to cash flow, right? Because the idea is to use the policy loan as opposed to, you know, a car loan or a second mortgage or a credit card, okay, or even a student loan. But the idea is to pay it back as you would a typical financial uh, institution, mm -hmm. right? But then when it comes to making an investment, the idea behind making the investment is to grow wealth and obviously improve cash flow. If you're improving cash flow, you want to replenish that debt, right? You want to pay off that debt ultimately. 
So these are, there's lots of different scenarios that you're likely facing if you come to us with this question. There is no like, you know, specific scenario that everybody has when they come to, uh, to us with this question. All the situations are different. So that's where it's important, again, to do some self-evaluation, really see where you're at holistically using Wealthview 360. Okay, and then obviously, you know, keeping uh, the hierarchy of wealth uh, up to date so you know where your asset distribution is. Yeah, absolutely. And meet with your advisor so that they can kind of help put those things together. Okay, another question we, we get uh, really relates to the financial times that we're in, but also the spreading of information, right? So, <laughs> and, and this is not just, you know, where we're at uh, uh, today. This recording happens to be in 2023. Uh, but the, you know, I would go to 2009, 2010, 2011, <laughs> Right. There's the the economic circumstances are always changing, right? Because people, right, are uh, predictable in some sense, but unpredictable in another sense. So you're always going to have like fluctuations in volatility when it comes to life. Period. Okay. And obviously, there's no exception in the uh, in the in the financial in the financial world. So looking at whether it's bank failures, corporate failures, fraud, like it, it we're going to have a, a, a semblance of that. Additionally, you're going to have the sensationalization, right, of what happens. Mm -hmm. Because obviously, the media sources that we get information, right, are paid by eyes, right, who view advertisements. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you're going to also have skewing. And sometimes, you know, the, the higher the emotional trigger is, you know, the, the you know, more eyes it gets. So again, that's a, a kind of a separate conversation about how we get information and news. Uh, and taking it sometimes with a filter, right? Those variables that I just mentioned, uh, mentioned being the filter, but still banks fail, institutions fail, uh, corporations fail, uh, big corporations fail and have mm -hmm. challenges. Okay, there's always changes. So the question we get is like, okay, here's the insurance company. I'm, you know, I'm seeing this bank fail. I'm seeing this institution fail. I'm seeing, you know, sometimes even insurance companies have hard times. Right. And, uh, you know, either sell off or fail in general. So we understand that this question is you know, definitely relevant and we get it quite often. So how do you typically uh, approach that? How do you approach the question of like, how safe is my policy? How safe is my cash value? How safe is are these institutions? Yeah, I, you know, it, the question became more prominent, especially when we started to see uh, some banks that unexpectedly had failed recently. And so, you know, clients naturally wanted to know, okay, is this, you know, under similar risks? First of all, the insurance companies from a regulatory standpoint don't have the luxury nor the associated risks of fractional reserve lending and, and uh, um, being able to lend against dollars multiple times over. And as a result, the reserves and the, uh, that they have on hand are able to meet their obligations. Also, the asset classes that they are purchasing are pretty darn boring. When you, and they're regulated. They're regulated to Because of that reason. Exactly. Yeah. So if you kind of peel back, the, I mean, if you really get into the numbers of what these insurance companies invest in, it is extremely boring bonds, treasuries, things that are producing cash, cash flow, such as uh, uh, big buildings that they rent out, investment-grade mortgage-backed securities, then things uh, uh, of that nature. 
when you look at the balance sheet, it's quite boring. And, and the reason for that is because they don't need to take on us unnecessary risks. They don't have to uh, uh, satisfy quarterly projections to stockholders. You know, they're looking at investing for certain events, mortality that they've guaranteed to pay out money on decades yeah. down the road from now. And they purchase assets that produce cash flow to match that expected mortality in the, the future bonds that, that they hold to maturity, that cash flow along the way, mm-hmm. so on and so forth. So you know, they're looking for very conservative four to 5% year over year returns on their overall balance sheet. Mm-hmm. And they're not shooting for the fences and buying a bunch of equities, hoping to buy low and sell high, like we might typically experience macroeconomically. So that, I mean, that's, that's one answer to that question. Individually, you've got uh, uh, with the policy contract contractual guarantees, um, which I don't think that we can can speak to that enough. The fact that in the financial world, the word guarantee is something that you just simply can't throw cannot around. say very yeah. often. You yeah. cannot say, and that's why in a prospectus or or an investment, there's all sorts of of disclaimers. Um, but we actually have guarantees associated with this asset class. And I yeah. think that's really unique. It's a highly, a highly regulated uh, industry, right? Yeah. So what, what I'd also, what I'd also say is first insurance companies are, are concerned. They, they employ uh, science. It's called actuarial science and actuarial science, right? Is typically based on large law of large numbers. It's kind of the just insurance concha, uh, concept in general, where you pool a bunch of risk and it minimizes the risk. So in this case, well, with insurance companies, you know, the, the risk that's being pulled is, is risk against disability, risk against uh, premature uh, passing, it's longevity risk uh, as well, disability. Yeah, there's a different, you know, long-term care, different types of risks, it's all kind of pulled together. Mm-hmm. And so the gains of an insurance company, and obviously the insurance companies we use are mutual companies, uh, where the policy, you know, specific policy owners themselves are essentially the owners and receive a, a pro rata share of the profitability of these insurance com- uh, of these companies. Okay, but what they're doing is they're 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 getting gains uh, based on what they're investing in. So there's interest gains, but there's also uh, I would say uh, risk gains, mortality gains, disability gains. There's gains associated with the pooling of risk, and you benefit uh, from that. But because of that. That's where you do you do not have the same behavior as other financial mm-hmm. institutions. So if you look at you know go back to two thousand eight two thousand nine, and I think AIG was the one that was placing these you know huge amounts of risk on uh, on derivatives right, mm-hmm. which are uh, contract default de- uh, where they accepted premium and they'd only pay out uh, a claim right if there was defaults mm-hmm. right based on certain high credit, which ended up happening. I uh, had nothing to do with the life insurance or the annuity side or the disability side of things, right? It just had to do with this specific uh, specific element uh, of AIG that was taking, you know, hot, making high risk. And obviously, they it, the regulatory bodies have course corrected, and so that's not going to be really possible in the future, right? But from you know, you had mentioned fractional reserve uh, banking, which is uh, essentially how our banking system works. Uh, and it is not how insurance companies work, right? Exactly. These are some of the most solid uh, companies that, uh, that are out there. Uh, and there are, you know, for instance, even with AIG, even with MetLife, which most people don't 
uh, know is no longer uh, in existence, uh, even though these companies, you know, were faltering and some have even gone out, gone out of business, doesn't mean that the contracts themselves, mm -hmm. right, were, you know, completely went away. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was similar to, you know, during 2008, 2009, some people like didn't pay on their mortgages because they thought, hey, the mortgage company went out of business, so I, I don't have to pay anymore. <laughs> it's like, no, that's not how it works, yeah. right? But again, you can you can see that you know without proper financial education, why people would come to that conclusion. So when it comes to the insurance companies and specifically policies, okay, your policy is a guaranteed contract, uh, and uh, really all contracts have have paid out from a life insurance standpoint since uh, since the beginning, uh, even though companies went out of business. So it's a very you now. There's nothing that is a 1,000% bulletproof, and I'm not saying that there is, but these are essentially the institutions that are right at the top as far as their strength and stability. Historically, it, it's uh, one of the few asset classes that stood the test of time. Mm -hmm. um, not only from a, a timeline standpoint, it having been in place for 175 plus years, um, which is incredible, it having already not just been able to weather interesting economic times through the Great Depression, the Great Recession, and a couple of world wars. That is, is pretty incredible. Um, but even during some of those tough times, they not only were able to survive, they thrived. There was, there's instances where these insurance companies shored up the U.S. government as far yeah. as lending that they needed. Yeah. Uh, uh, it was a different time where we, we weren't accustomed to just printing our way out of the issues of the time. And so... That you know, it became uh, even a source of funding for uh, uh, um, municipalities and governments in 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 the past. So it's, I mean, it's it's been a, a, a historically an extremely strong asset. Um, there are some stop gaps, maybe even that clients don't know about, such as reinsurance, which would kick in if unexpected losses were occurring. So in the event of of life insurance, which most of our clients have. Um, if they were experiencing unexpected number of claims, reinsurance would kick in and help cover those unexpected costs. So, so reinsurance again is is an insurance policy that the insurance covering. companies buy. Exactly, right? covering they, their they insurance pay policies. a premium that covers their insurance policies. Exactly, yeah. and that's so, also there. There's also regulation on uh, around that, and uh, usually it has to do with the asset base of the insurance companies, their ratings, their investment performance. But reinsurance is essentially, again, another layer of protection, right? In the event that there's, again, like the pandemic, right? You had COVID pandemic, uh, you know, there, I don't think as many people passed on, even though a lot of people passed on uh, as was expected, mm -hmm. right? Uh, it, even if it did, right, reinsurance exists for those kind of excessive claims that would take place. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, at the end of the day, I told people that, you'd be hard pressed to find a safer asset class on planet earth. The only thing that you, that might be safer would be ammunition and, and seeds for growing. Uh, maybe farming. your skills of bartering and farming because in, in like a true macroeconomic meltdown, like if, if we, you know, if, if the dollar became worthless, it doesn't matter where your dollars are. It doesn't matter if, if that were the case. So this would be the last asset class to go. And, and if that were to go, then, you, you, you better hope that you've got yeah, some, other problems. Yeah, exactly. It, it didn't matter where the dollars were at that yep. point. So, okay. The, the, a question we get, which I think is, is propagated uh, by other financial gurus who are comparing, you know, investments and financial products to, to whole life, right. Is this idea that, uh, you know, you don't get your cash value and your death benefit, 
right? And so there's lots of confusion around, okay, what is cash value and what is death benefit? Uh, and why don't I get both? So let's, let's kind of get into this. How do you, how do you typically approach that, uh, that question? I think it's a misunderstanding as to what the cash value is first and foremost. Um, and, and what it represents. Um, cause once we understand what it is, uh, um, then, then it, it makes a lot of sense. So from our perspective, when we're looking at our cash value, that is our living benefits. That's what, you know, we've got the ability to access, uh, uh, and utilize throughout our lives, et, et cetera. But from the insurance company's perspective, what that value represents is the amount of equity that they have been able to build up in that policy. And the difference between that equity amount and the death benefit is the amount of risk that they are under at any given time. So I, I had mentioned in a, a previous episode, there's a lot of similarities between how these policies function and how a mortgage works. So again, as morbid as it might sound, we're financing the value of our life for you know, a couple, few decades. Um, We've got equity that is growing, and as you get older, that equity cash value amount is going to get closer and closer to the, uh, the death benefit amount until ultimately maturity when they're equal to each other. So let me, let me, let me yeah. kind of interrupt here. So if you look at kind of base whole life, right, it is kind of like a long-term financing, right? It's mm -hmm. like a hundred-year financing. Mm -hmm. Imagine if you had a hundred-year mortgage, yeah. right? Really low payment, but you'd be paying on it for a hundred years. Yeah. Okay, and obviously over the course of 100 years, your, your home builds up equity, okay? But you don't have equity immediately because you just financed it and you're paying a dollar amount. Now, you could buy the home outright, right? Uh, but usually people do not have all the cash to do that. But with inside of, of insurance, okay, there are single premium policies where you can pay for an entire, you know, let's say that you, you're, you want a death benefit of a million dollars, okay? You don't have to pay like small base premiums. You could pay like, depends on age, depends on health, et cetera. But mm -hmm. let's say it's like a hundred thousand mm -hmm. dollars, right? So that hundred thousand dollars goes in the majority of it's in equity. Yeah. Right. And then over the course of time, it continues to grow. Okay. And you get dividends and, and so forth. Okay. But looking at how most people are purchasing uh, policies that, that we recommend, right. They are paying a base premium, maybe some PUA. So they're essentially are financing that big death benefit over the course of time. Exactly. Yeah. So in the case of a mortgage, if you got, you know, a year, two, 10 years into a 60-year mortgage and then you pass away, what does your family get? Well, they only get the amount of equity that you have been able to build up in, you know, in, in that piece of property. But in the case of life insurance, the insurance company is on the hook for paying out that death benefit amount whenever mortality occurs, which is why they ask about our health and, and, you know, lifestyle questions about, you know, jumping out of planes or scuba diving and things of that nature. And it's not because those things mean you're going to die. It just means that they need to make sure that, that they're, that that risk is being planned for because, um, they're under, especially if you look at the first couple of decades of those policies, they're under a tremendous amount of risk. Mm -hmm. And sure, there might be some individuals that pass away. We've, we've have and they account some for of our that. clients. Yeah. They account for that. But again, using the law of large numbers, spreading that risk over thousands of individuals lives, they know that by and large life expectancy is going to fall within this, you know, small window. Yeah. So, yep. yeah. Okay. So th 
really looking at what cash value is and what a death benefit is, right? Uh, cash value, you know, technically is like the net present value. It's the present value today of a future death benefit. And that future death benefit is going to be based on continually paying premiums, mm -hmm. right? Getting interest, getting dividends. Okay. But essentially cash value is the present value of that future value. Correct. Yep. So it is, it is the equity. So essentially building up equity in a house, right? You don't get the equity and the value of the house. Right. Okay. They're part of kind of the same thing. Exactly. So it's just, an, uh, I think an understanding, a better understanding of, um, the, what the cash value represents, not just for us as a living benefit, but from the eyes of the insurance company, what that dollar amount represents as the net present value of the policy is important to understand. Okay. Another question we, we get, you know, really has to do with changes in, uh, changes in the economy, specifically to, uh, to interest rates, right? So as if, if you look at really the 2000, you know, post, uh, 2008, 2009, you know, great recession, financial crisis. Okay. There, you know, really became a, a hyper low interest rate environment. Uh, and, and then of course you had uh, COVID, uh, and then interest rates, you know, went down even a little bit uh, more Then you get into post COVID. And obviously we experienced, you know, quite a bit of, uh, of inflation. So interest rates uh, started to, to go up, right? So as interest rates fluctuate, like how to, what does that have to do with uh, policy performance? And so we get this question a lot because uh, insurance companies, a lot of their uh, assets are based on uh, market interest rates. And so as interest rates go up, the assumption is so do the investment returns of the insurance company. So I mean, it's a logical question. It makes sense. We get it quite often. How do you typically approach that? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, it, that says to me that the client understands um, that there is a correlation there. It may not necessarily always equate to an immediate correlation. Because if we think about it, yes, these insurance companies invest heavily in interest-sensitive types of vehicles, bonds, treasuries, uh, uh, et cetera. Um, but in the case of an increasing interest rate environment, it's not that they are offloading all their assets at a discount just for the sake of buying higher yielding uh, uh, instruments at that time. So again, they're holding these assets to maturity. Um, and so what, I, what we've seen historically is in high interest rate environments, yes, there could be an increase in the uh, dividends, the yields of the insurance company, and ultimately what we as, as uh, uh, policyholders receive in the form of, of dividends, also increasing, but it's not always immediate. There's usually a lag effect of um, that taking a bit of time, depending on the, you know, how, how high they had increased and what the sustained period of time of those increase, increase in uh, interest rate environments what was. All of those factors come into play. Um, so, is there a correlation? Yes, uh, but it may not necessarily always be immediate like we might expect. Yeah, so there's, and I know you have a, a spreadsheet that kind of just tracks the historical, and, and like you said, there's a, there's a lagging impact, right? So if, if interest rates you know, go up, the experience of the insurance company's portfolio right, doesn't just uh, you know, change overnight or change within that year based on where interest rates are. Uh, because the underlying, you know, in investments were purchased with a certain interest rate environment. 
right? And so the you know premiums and money that went into the insurance company's portfolio, okay, uh, they essentially are earning that interest rate, earning that cash flow. But if interest rates suddenly uh, go up and are higher, right, than what was purchased, the present value of those assets go down, right? And so if they were to liquidate those assets and go into you know higher interest rates, it would it would be a wash. That's just how kind of like the interest rate driven like bonds, uh, that's that's kind of how they're how they're driven. So the idea is like, all right, if interest rates go up, then then all future cash flows will experience those uh, those higher interest rates. So the premiums, right, going into a contract in a higher interest rate environment will experience higher uh, interest gains. Okay, but the previous assets that they own uh, won't. The the visual that you talked about, the spreadsheet that we that we had created, uh, it, it the the easiest example is going back to late 70s and early 80s when we saw unprecedented uh, interest rates uh cds that were paying double digits i mean it was it was bonkers yeah um we also have uh uh uh, dividend crediting rates for a couple of insurance companies dating back to those times and that's what you see is that a couple of years after those spikes in the early 80s is when dividend yields also went up i think frankly because we've been in you know a, a depressed interest rate environment, not just ba- dating back to the housing crisis of 2008, 2009, but you know before that, the decade before that, uh, really going to late 90s, we've been in a in a really depressed interest rate environment for a, a significant period of time, and I think that it's quite incredible that the insurance companies have been able to uh, uh, um, be profitable and produce with the environment that they've been subject to for the last couple of decades. So uh, that speaks to, you know, reduction in costs and, and automation and some of those things that are occurring. But I think that uh, um, that needs to be spoken of as well, which is, yeah, we're experiencing an, uh, a little spike in interest rates, what, what we're feeling, uh, you know, inflation cooking hot and, and things of that nature. But you know, when we spread that out, we kind of uh, zoom out and look at the the big picture. Um, this is a relatively short uh, period of time that we've experienced that increase in interest rates. And if we did experience that for a sustained period of time, undoubtedly that would uh, increase the profitability and the dividends that policy holders would be receiving. So I'll, I'll add one, one last uh, thing to this. So obviously, you know, in higher interest rates, right? We're going to uh, give higher yields to insurance companies, which then obviously pass on uh, net profits through to uh, policy owners in the form of the dividend. We also got to realize, you know, this goes to the point you were making about uh, how insurance companies have, uh, you know, essentially kept their guarantees and continually paid uh, dividends despite the low interest rate uh, environment. Insurance companies have lots of money, right? So they're always looking for deals and they always find deals. Okay, and I think right now it's it hasn't necessarily uh, played out, but typically when you have these shifts in the economy, right, and the price of money, which is interest rates, uh, it fluctuates. Uh, most people in a low interest rate environment, uh, whether it's entrepreneurs, businesses, et cetera, they they take on a little bit more risk because the cost of debt isn't that much. They take on debt and they obviously put that money into a business, put that money into a venture. 
when interest rates go up and they require more debt, the cost of money goes up. And usually that doesn't play out for businesses and entrepreneurs, right, who are, are taking these risks. Uh, so what ends up happening is uh, deals present themselves that otherwise would not have presented, themse uh, presented themselves, right? Because the carrying costs of, uh, of debt are going up, yeah. right? Uh, even collateralized debt. So you really look at that and it, it, it eventually flushes through the system, but those with cash, right? Those uh, and, and insurance companies are right at the forefront of this. And there's so many different examples that, that we have where insurance companies have gone in uh, and essentially bought a piece of property uh, or, you know, essentially bought, let's say it's a bond, right? It's just uh, essentially pension funds or other groups, right, who have to rebalance their portfolios and maybe took a little bit excessive risk because they couldn't meet the obligations, have to unload assets that they otherwise wouldn't have, have done, right? If the interest rate environment stayed the same, insurance companies come in and are able to get uh, highly discounted assets. So that's another part of, I would say, their investment strategy that they've deployed over you know, a pretty long period of time. And, and not only are insurance companies able to do that, but that's kind of what we're advocating with our clients as mm -hmm. well, which is the policy puts us in a strong cash position to be able to take advantage of those times when assets might go on sale. If we think about the people that made out gangbusters in, in 2008, 2009, it was those individuals that were sitting on good amounts of cash. And, and so that's what the policy provides us is a, a, in my opinion, the best cash storehouse on planet earth that enables us to take advantage of those opportunities when most other people are trying to get into a cash position to reduce their losses. So, it's, you know, the insurance companies are doing it. We are able to do that at, at the same time because the liquidity exists regardless of what might be going on macroeconomically with the policy loan provision. Okay, awesome. The other thing I, I said that dividends inevitably would go up, but in an increase in interest rate environment and in an increase of overall portfolio yields to the insurance company, that can lead to dividends going up, but the Portfolio performance is one of three different factors that really go into the uh, uh, profitability and, and ultimately what we receive as dividends. Also included into that e equation would be uh, ex ex mortality experience uh, and, and general costs of doing business. So um, one of the things that has helped insurance companies in the last couple of decades with the depressed interest rate environment and maybe uh, reduced portfolio yields, we've also seen increases in mortality expenses and reduction in expenses, increase in, in overall mortality because life expectancies are longer. And as a result, that has helped. So there are other factors we've that also go seen, into that. We've also seen like more stringent underwriting guidelines. Yes. Right, where companies become uh, way more, uh, I would say, uh, conservative right, where, uh, you know, they, they require more, uh, a more healthy individual to get specific ratings. So they're able to really, uh, I would say, balance not just the interest uh, rate environment, right, but also, uh, you know, the mortality expenses, which, which go into their profitability. Yeah, so portfolio exp expenses, or excuse me, portfolio returns, mortality expenses, and overall cost of doing business, those things are, are all go into how a dividend is ultimately uh, calculated and, and paid out to policyholders. Um, 
So there are different factors that, that come into play. But yes, if we did see uh, increases in interest rate environment, it does help on one of those factors uh, being portfolio profitability. 